You have located Geekfest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. It's game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. <laughs> A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, the next chapter in the Star Wars saga, Return of the Jedi. The battle between good and evil rages on. Join the further adventures of Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, Princess Leia, Lando Calrissian, Chewbacca, C-3PO and R2-D2, and Darth Vader. A journey to alien worlds. It's a trap. A rebellion against oppression. An epic of heroes and villains. An adventure as vast as the universe. Return of the Jedi. Coming to a selected theater in your galaxy. everybody and welcome to Geekfest Rants. My name is Carlos Perone and today we are going to look at two new posters and some books. We are going to begin with two Star Wars 40th anniversary posters, specifically the Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. I'll tell you all about the artist and my feelings on how the poster looks and how does it fit, you know, with all the other posters, you know, how the artists came about designing it and hopes for a future poster that I'll tell you about. And then we are going to talk about a couple of making of books, primarily Conan the Barbarian, but we'll also throw in there a little bit of Escape from New York and Flash Gordon. These are books that have been coming out pretty frequently. There's a couple more coming and hopefully we'll get to see a few more, especially the ones that I really wish they would make that have never been made before. But we'll talk about all of that. So let's get started with our posters of the month, Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi 40th Anniversary. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Just get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. 
I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. All right, let's begin with our posters of the month. And this time around, we have 40th anniversary Star Wars posters. This is something that, at first, it was a little bit outside my radar. Part of the issue was that they decided to commission, and they meaning Disney, Lucasfilm, a 40th anniversary poster for the re-release and the anniversary, obviously, of The Empire Strikes Back. This was back in 2020, three years ago, to go along with the re-release, you know, the special engagement re-release of the film. Back then, I did not go to see it. I think that was probably in the middle, more or less, of COVID to a certain extent. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that I didn't bother to go see it, partly because of that. And I honestly don't know how much of a big deal they really made out of it. But I do remember the fact that all of a sudden, the, you know, the blip kind of came through that there was a new poster ad. Not, not only that the film was being re-released, but, you know, for an anniversary edition, but that there was a new poster. And at the time, I really didn't pay too much attention of it. If I would have gone to see the film, I probably would have gotten the poster because I would have gotten a very, you know, close-up look at how good that poster And let me tell you a little bit about this poster. The artist is Matt Ferguson. He's a British artist. He's done a lot of work for comic book related stuff, Marvel, obviously Star Wars, uh, Disney related stuff. So, you know, he's he's into the field of poster making, you know. I would not consider him to be one of the greats, you know, the greats are the greats. And I, and I think we, we kind of draw a line at a certain point with the greats on where it ends. I mean, does it end at Struzan? Is that where everything kind of ends as far as the greats goes? Probably, maybe. However, as we've seen in the past, Lucasfilm, when they were releasing some of their sequels, you know, their Star Wars sequels, they used other artists that are not necessarily the greats. Some of them used... You know, agencies, some of them used kind of like a one-shot artist type of deal. I'm sure they get a super crazy, insane deal, you know, out of dealing with people that are not that popular or famous yet. And this might be an example of that. But anyway, like I said, I completely ignored this. And then a couple years later, this year, we came upon the 40th anniversary of Return of the Jedi. And Matt Ferguson once again was commissioned to do a Return of the Jedi poster to coincide again with the re-release, the temporary re-release. And again, I missed it. I don't have the COVID excuse this time around. I just didn't feel like it. I don't even know if, to tell you the truth, if I had a nearby location. I probably did. I imagine somewhere in Orlando. But at the time, if I remember right, through Disney Insider, I missed... You know, every Wednesday they put out some kind of a reward where you can exchange your points, you know, for, for posters or some other stuff. I usually get posters from them. And I, I'm pretty sure that this poster, this Empire poster, 40th anniversary, was up there and I must have missed it. I must have not been paying attention. This has happened many times before. I tried to get a specific poster and I miss the deadline or I'm not aware of when they're dropping and that sort of thing. But I did miss the Empire one. However, for the Return of the Jedi poster, I was able to snag one, which is a fantastic poster. But let's begin with Empire Strikes Back. First of all, 
The question that everybody usually, you know, if you're into these sort of posters that comes up is, well, where's the Star Wars poster? Where was the 40th anniversary of Star Wars? Well, the 40th anniversary of Star Wars was not a poster commissioning type of thing because that took place in, I guess, 2017. And at that point, you know, I think Lucas film had just been acquired by Disney and they weren't really that up to date in terms of how to deal with an anniversary if they were going to do a re-release and that kind of thing so they kind of skipped that one so right now what all we have is if you are into collecting posters and if you like these two posters that we're talking about today is Empire and Jedi so let's begin with Empire The poster itself, and you'll see it in the little graphic, is basically Vader in the middle, and in the background you have what it is the meditation chamber that he has uh, on Empire. And as the chamber is opening, on the black part of the chamber, which is the outside of the chamber, everything is kind of dark. You could see some stars up on the top. And on the inside of the chamber, everything is very light white, light bluish. Uh, depending on which poster you're you, you're looking at, because there are variations we're going to talk about. As a hybrid poster where it's, you know, you have different things going on, you have, like I said, Vader's dead square in the middle. You have some TIE fighters flying what appears to be from the inside of the chamber out into space, into the black side. It's a little bit of a trick. And in the bottom, you have some Star Destroyers also flying out. And in the very, very bottom, you have the AT-ATs coming kind of at you from both sides. And Dead Square in the middle, below Vader, in the bottom part of the poster, right on top of the, you know, the logo, the Empire Strikes Back logo, you have the Bespin steps with the the orange uh, lights and the silhouette of Luke and Vader clashing swords, uh, lightsabers. And it is the iconic Luke stance where he's got his arms kind of folded, slightly bent over his head and he's hitting Vader right, you know, the, the the lightsabers are clashing at that point. This is a poster that when I listen to a couple of the Matt Ferguson interviews that he's been giving out for a long time now, uh, he talks about how this came about. Again, through his Disney connections, they offered him this poster to see if he was interested in he, he took it right away. Obviously, you don't turn this kind of stuff down. And he says that he had a couple of concepts in mind, but this one was probably the one that he was aiming at the most. He says that what he did was that he rewatched the movie once again because he thought that coming up with a design, he says like most of the good designs have already been made. There have been so many posters I mean, for myself, I know most of the posters that are out there. I know most of the posters that have been used officially in some capacity, whether it is the the film release or an international release or some kind of uh, merchandising poster, artwork, that kind of thing. And then you have those offshoots that are kind of off to the side that you're like, oh my God, this is weird. This has never been used anywhere, but it is kind of nice. You know, that kind of stuff. And that is part of the issue that I think that he was having is that most of the iconic poses and, and fixtures have already been done. As a matter of fact, that the, the, even the small section that has Luke and Vader clashing, I think that's kind of a little bit of that Revenge of the Jedi poster, uh, coming soon uh, teaser poster. You know, the, that, that image is already iconic in itself. Uh, however, as he rewatched the movie, he says that, you know, he was talking to his wife and that 
he really kind of gravitated, focused on the meditation chamber. Because once that chamber opens, there is such a distinct contrast between what's coming in from inside and what's outside. Outside is a very dark, gloomy-looking empire, but inside it's very bright and white and sterile. And it provided such a distinctive clash of two separate palettes that that kind of gave him the idea you know that the the chamber itself you know it's kind of if you remember guys it's like a like a claw like a claw that is hinging on itself from the bottom to the top so as you it's like teeth opening up it's like a like a monster and he places vader there obviously in the movie he's vader is sitting here he has him standing which is something that obviously didn't happen in the movie but it is a very effective poster it kind of shows, again, this is Empire Strikes Back. This poster is supposed to show you basically the the might of the Empire. It's the, the strike back part of the Empire. And this is Vader in his full, you know, power. He's standing up there. He's got his troops kind of coming towards you. You know, they're flying out of the poster. And way in the bottom is where you do see Luke kind of challenging him down there. Uh, so you do get a hint of, of something good might come out of this but overall you know percentage wise it's all empire it's empire striking back (laughs) at the viewer so you have that placement of all those objects in the bottom part of the poster you have the empire strikes back and below that depending on how they're able to move that art around is where the credits go for the theatrical release the poster that i purchased through a third party or something i don't know i remember exactly what company it was is the one without the credits so it's kind of just like the the print without the necessarily the 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 film credit so it's not the one sheet but it's the one sheet art it says 40th anniversary on top in red the star wars saga continues right dead square in the middle top and then you have all the action taking place that i described before one thing about this poster that is something that i always look and and i've talked about this in the past certain movies are especially star wars movies especially the original 3 films there are certain colors that kind of describe that movie now if you were to say to me forget what the, the this poster that i'm looking at right now but just in general if you were to say to me what color does the empire strikes back as a film provide me with what images of colors well i would say a very light blue a lot of white and orange and black because those are the colors of that film you have hoth with its blues and whites you have bespin with that sunset orange yellows you know what i mean and the blackness of not only space but the duel at the end inside bespin with orange set against black. So those are very important colors when I think of this. Now, when you look at this poster, there's actually a number of versions available for the Empire Strikes Back version. You have the more generic one, the more standard one, which is the one that I got, which has a kind of a blue-whitish tint, even though I will say that my version, because it is a third party vendor went a little too crazy i think with the blue i think it should have been slightly less bluish but who cares it's it's gorgeous 
anyway. And maybe one day I'll, I'll purchase a real one from the website that actually has them. By the way, if you're interested, there's a website called bottleneckgallery.com. In there, you're going to find they're a little expensive and they're officially licensed and they have all different versions of not only these posters we're talking about today, but many other artists. I guess this company kind of handles selling their properties, their posters, their prints. They have lenticulars. They have quads. It's it's insane. Anyway, I have the, the more standard version, but they also put out a... What's referred to as, well, it's a variant, which is more of a black and white. So in other words, it's pretty much exactly like the the regular one, except that they stripped all the blue out of it. And you only have really two colors, not exactly, but two main colors, black and white. And you still have the red for the 40th anniversary. You still have that orangey reddish for Bespin and the, the laser bolts that are coming out of the... The Adats are red and the TIE Fighters are green, just like in the movie, just like in the other poster. But this variant is more of a, it's a different type of version of that poster. It is a little more rare if you're into that thing. Now, the other thing that they have, which from what I see, it's sold out already at this particular website. However, you never know. They might restock them again at some point. Is a quad version. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with quads, quads are more of the British style of poster that it's more of a, if you think of the American one sheet as a portrait style, you know, when you print something, you either print portrait or landscape. Most American posters are portrait style, meaning they're taller and narrower. For uh, England, I mean, you can still get regular posters, but they also have the quads there. So what they did here is, or what Matt Ferguson did, is that he expanded on the art that he drew for this particular version. He expanded the sides, so you do have that landscape ratio. Now, granted, he didn't go crazy in terms of how much more material he put. He basically extended all the laser blasts going in both directions. Uh, you do see a little bit more of like the corners of the the meditation chamber, you know, and then the mountains that you see in the background, the ice mountains of the snow. He basically extended that all the way to the edges and obviously the sky and space. So that is another version too that you might be interested in but again for my purposes this is what i want i want the one that's in the film the one that's at the movie theater when the movie was released and again i am considering the more i look at it the more i'm considering that maybe i should go for the the more accurate color version because like i said the one i have it's just a little too blue the regular standard version shouldn't be this blue but again, I'm just being nitpicky. Another thing that you could consider too is that a lot of these posters, specifically the uh, the portrait ones I'm talking about, the regular one-sheet ones, they're in Japanese also. You can buy them in Japanese, which is another fantastic you know, niche market of, of the Japanese posters. It's the same art. It's exactly the same art, except that everything is written, you know, all the logos, all the information that's up there. It's written in Japanese. It's a very, very busy, loud style. I mean, I've, I, if you guys have seen some of those Japanese posters, they're really, really, they, they come alive, you know? It's like, it's almost like they're screaming at you. So that's another option and another variation of this Sutter poster. Now, we move forward now to 2023, which is this year. 
which once again, as I mentioned before, 40th anniversary, Return of the Jedi, the movie came out again, I completely missed it, I kind of got lazy, didn't do it, but I did jump on the poster, I did jump on the poster, thank God I jumped on the poster, <laughs> because I wanted that poster, man, and I want that poster bad. For Return of the Jedi, once again, they ask him to return, and to, no pun intended, and to come up with something for Jedi. Well, this one is a little different. In Empire, because it was the Empire Strikes Back, it's more about the Empire hitting you straight on. For Return of the Jedi, the composition of where he placed items, and it's a similar concept in a way. In other words, things are very symmetrical. You have a middle, you have sides, you have these other things coming around, but it's all kind of in that direction. Things are flying in that direction as they did in the previous post. For Return of the Jedi, you have, let's see, up top it says 40th anniversary. You have Luke is the character that's dead center, about medium size, let's say. Uh, he's wearing his Jedi outfit from Return of the Jedi. Obviously, he's got the flap down, so you see the white. He's dressed in all black. And then behind him, huge, you have the image of Vader kind of hovering behind them, you know, over him. Vader is still taking up uh, about half the poster. It's, it's Vader is still an overwhelming image in this poster. But he is no longer the main focus. The main focus is Luke. Um, one of the things I heard him say in one of the interviews was like, okay, it's Return of the Jedi. So you could see Luke or Vader as the return of the Jedi. It could be either one. But granted that obviously we know how the movie ends and like we know the story so that Luke is by the way things are placed in this poster, almost overwhelmed by so much bad guys or evil, if you will. But the fact that he comes out victorious at the end in more ways than one is what's important about this post. So like I said, you have Vader in the back, you have Luke up front. Below Luke, you have the Emperor sitting on his throne. And below there, where the other poster you had the Bespin stairs, here you have the Emperor's throne room stairs with the Emperor on top of the stairs and those two pod stations on either side. And again, very symmetrical. It's the symmetry that they go for in this with these posters. It's very good. Up top again, you have, instead of TIE fighters, you have the the TIE interceptors. You got a whole bunch of TIE interceptors coming at you. There's the half-completed Death Star on one side. There's the Executor on the other side. There are some far away TIE fighters and some regular Star Destroyers, you know, tiny. Then when you get to the middle of this poster, you start to see the trees in the back behind everything. You have the space, but it's being viewed through the porthole or the window of the Emperor's throne room. So that is what kind of overall is making you look at space way, way beyond. Again, as you start kind of looking down, down towards the middle to the Luke area, that's when everything starts to kind of turn into Endor. You have the trees, you have the uh, the deflector shield, you have a couple of uh, ATSTs. I think I see back there some stormtroopers, a scout trooper and a couple of biker scouts back there. A lot of foliage around the front and the foliage continues all the way to the bottom of the poster. Underneath the stairs for the Emperor's Throne Room, Star Wars Return of the Jedi returns to theaters April 28th, and then the credits. Because again, this particular one that I have is the one that was used in posters. This poster is also available, like I mentioned with the other one, in a quad version. For the quad extensions, the left and the right, what you basically get is more 
ATSTs. Uh, you get more trees, you get more foliage, you know, you just get more of the extensions and more of the trees. And the funny thing is that the trees, as you move left and right, they kind of climb up to the top of the poster. So uh, there is a more of a overwhelming greenness, if you will, when you're dealing with the quad. Another thing about this poster is that you also get this red glow on the, let's say, right side of the poster that seems to be making the back of Vader, one side of Vader, the right side if I'm looking at him, and the right side of Luke kind of shine. It could be an explosion, it could be a fire, but it's kind of like a very red orangey glow, which again, you could go in the other direction. You could you could say it could be a space battle fire. It could be the fire of, of, of Vader burning that, you know, we got that red. However, what's important here is just like in the first film, you have to look at this poster through the color spectrum in terms of, okay, when I imagine Return of the Jedi, when I think about Return of the Jedi, what are the color palettes that I think about? Primarily because of the fact that, to me, Return of the Jedi, which was Revenge of the Jedi, when I saw the first trailer, I remember how distinctive black was a main color, red was a main We did get to see some green that we hadn't seen before. And we also got to see some yellow because of the Tatooine, you know, orangey yellows. So those are the primary colors that I kind of think about. With this poster, they kind of hit three out of four, though. Uh, they completely ignore the, the yellow Tatooine part of the movie, but they hit those other colors dead on. I would say the most important is black and red are the most important colors here, and they hit them. And then you do, like I said before, you got that swash of green, because green is another one of these major settings. Forest moon as opposed to an ice world, you know, uh, as opposed to Bespin. That kind of thing. Now, with this poster, was also offered, if you were buying it, as a black and white version with all the colors stripped out except for the red 40th anniversary on the top, which is red for Japanese version, for Japanese purposes. So you do have that option of Japanese again. But as far as the poster itself, the characters on the poster, everything's black and white except Luke. You could see his green lightsaber. And that red glow around Vader's helmet and shoulder and Luke's kind of profile, you kind of get that red glow that, that remains even in the black and white. So you do have quite a number of options if you really think about it. They really go out of their way in giving you so many versions, you know, of this poster that if you are into, you can get. So these are two, as far as I'm concerned, fantastic additions to the collection of Star Wars posters. I always liked the anniversary editions because then because it was actually released to a movie theater, it gives the poster a little more street cred, if you will, as opposed to somebody they hire and they never use their art or kind of shelve it and then they kind of use it in a more minimal manner. But whenever they kind of elevate a poster to some kind of theatrical release, it really works out. And sometimes you end up with really great versions. I mean, I remember, like I said, I, I own an original. It was a 1982 Star Wars re-release that had the little banner that said, come watch the trailer for Revenge of the Jedi. You never know. Raiders Lost Ark. I owned an original re-release. I don't have the original, you know, initial uh, one sheet. So 
yeah, once you put these out, they do become more official as far as I'm concerned. So the question that comes around and has been asked a number of times, both of the times that this artist has been giving interviews is, where's the Star Wars poster? Well, as I mentioned before, they never put out a Star Wars poster for the 40th anniversary. Uh, However, we're only four years away from the 50th anniversary of Star Wars. So it would be a perfect opportunity for them to return with a re-release. They're going to have to do a re-release. And this would be a great opportunity to bring back this artist in a couple of years and put his version of the anniversary poster because it's kind of like a set that you want to see it through completion. You want to see it all the way through. And from what I understand, he already knows exactly what he wants to do. It's just a matter of waiting and doing it. So from a number of sources, I think even including himself, as long as they stick to the plan, it's all set, ready to go, and and he's going to do it. So let's hope we get that far. Another thing that you have to also remember when it comes to the color schemes, another reason why Return of the Jedi, you know, the color red is so prominent is that the marketing of the film through merchandising and through just about everything else Red was the color of the logo for the toys and in the, on the poster itself, obviously. For Empire Strikes Back, uh, depending on when and where, there was some blue used, especially in the trailers uh, for the Empire Strikes Back. Uh, there was some black, uh, I believe, in some other things. But when you think about Star Wars, Star Wars is the one that I think, if I remember right, had the gold stripes you know the 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 racetracks the gold it also had the white because star wars was in white and it was also in black in certain instances so with star wars you also have to remember what are the primary colors of star wars well you got the yellow tatooine i would say you have the black of space and i I don't know i think yellow and black are the the main colors if you think about it you could throw a splash of orange for explosions for example but if you think about the locations you know the death star itself black takes care of that because the death star is mainly black colors you're dealing with the trench battle again it's the 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 tatooine is overwhelmingly a dominant color i would imagine and the black and maybe the gray black and gray because yeah, that's that's what I would go with. So I have no idea what his plan is. I did see some videos that show you his, his little sketchbook. He talks about how, for example, when he was putting together the Empire one, he uh, at, at first, you know, he wasn't sure what to do. So at one point, he actually, instead of doing it graphically, which is how he does most of his stuff, you know, through computer uh, drawings, he had a little sketchbook. And in the sketchbook, he had like all these different concepts he was throwing around and and he kind of narrowed it down to like two or three concepts, let's say. And one of them is the one that he personally wanted out of, let's say, three, which is the one that he ended up with, the one with Meditation Chamber. But he also had one concept, which was like a Vader sticking out his fist in the air and then Vader sticking out his hand in the air, kind of like when he's gesturing to Luke, which... Again, that's a little reminiscent of the re-release of Empire, which has Vader with his hand out there, you know, so maybe that's why he didn't go too crazy over it. I have seen online some pretty, you know, color, far completed versions, more than just sketches of all three concepts. And the funny thing is that the concept that he ended up with never had Luke and Vader in the bottom. It was just Vader. So that's kind of interesting how even his final one, 
gets tweaked all the way to the end. So, yeah, I look forward to hopefully, you know, if we do get to the to the 50th, there are some other posters he's done. There are some other posters he's released. There is a New Hope theme poster that is not an anniversary poster. It's Luke and Leia swinging over the uh, in the Death Star with the troopers sh- shooting at them. I don't think that's going to be the uh, the one that he's going to use. I, I I mean, I hope not because of the fact that if he is going to use that, it's kind of like, well, you already kind of gave it away. So I hope that he's been saving, you know, a specific concept for when we do get to that 50th anniversary. So in the meantime, like I said, you go to that website, bottlenectgallery.com. They're a little expensive, but they are from the source. They're super great quality. All the different versions are there. Or you can just, you know, do a search uh, on the internet and get them a lot cheaper. But with the internet, you're always kind of like all these poster printing places you always take a chance on the quality of the paper and the quality of the printing and the quality of the colors. Like I mentioned, you know, mine is a little too blue. I'm still seriously considering getting an, an authentic one that's a little more color accurate. But there you have it. Those are our posts of the month. Matu, Mirada, must burn the books, Montag. The books have nothing to say. When I was your age, television was called books. You, Mr. Bemis, are a reader. A, a reader? A reader. A reader of books, magazines, periodicals, newspapers. For the second part of our show today, I want to focus a little bit on uh, a couple of books. Specifically, one book. These are books that were put out by a gentleman named John Walsh, and they were all making of books, making of this movie or that movie. I'm going to start off with Conan the Barbarian, but he also has, or at least I own, his version also of Escape from New York and Flash Gordon. Now, this individual is a author, he's a filmmaker, he is connected, uh, you know, to a lot of these films and has been instrumental in making all these making of books. Now... I mentioned this once before. I am totally spoiled by the Rinsler making of books. That is the peak, you know, that is the the, the standard of what a making of books should be. So these books don't come close to that level (laughs) of detail and research and access to information. However, the flip side of this is that this guy seems to be hitting on certain books having to do with certain films that most likely have never seen any form of making of publishing, at least that I know about. So, like I mentioned, I'm going to talk about Conan, a little bit about Escape from New York, and a little bit about Flash Gordon, but he already, he has also put out a book on Ray Harryhausen's Lost Films, which are the films that were in development, films that were planned, and they never just got off the ground. And, you know, he has a nice big, I I own that book, I just haven't read it yet. He put out a book on Doctor Who and the Daleks, the official story of the film. Again, I'm not a huge Doctor Who person, so I'm not that crazy about that one. And he put out a a book about the Wicker Man last year. Again, I'm not 
as huge a fan as I am of these other films, but that's something that if you're interested, you might want to look at. And uh, this year, he's putting out a book on The Third Man, another film, classic film. Now, that I find it hard to believe that nobody's ever put out a, a you know very uh, thorough retrospective of that film, but hey, whatever. But anyway, let's begin with Conan. So with Conan, he's able to take the history uh, of not just the film itself, but obviously you have to go into the the story and how the story came about and the fact that Conan is based on a Robert Howard series of books. Originally, I think it was like nine books. And I'm talking about, this is like 1932 to 1936, a very long time ago. Those books were reprinted in the 50s, I think 50 to 57. And then they were reprinted again <laughs> between 66 and 77. And this time around, they started including the Frank Franzetta art. Now, we've done shows about some of this material in the past, which I would urge you guys, look up the show I did about Frank Franzetta's artwork for the teaser poster of Conan. I think we even did a, a retrospective on the film itself a long time ago also. Uh, so you can look up more information, but I'm trying to focus mainly on these making of books. The film had been in development since the mid-70s with the rights and uh, different people attached to them left and right. At one point, Oliver Stone, which he still has a credit in the script, put out a, a draft of this. He was originally hired and possibly direct, but then that didn't work out. Ridley Scott was thrown in the mix at one point as a potential director. Obviously, that didn't work out either. And then finally, they settled on John Milius. Speaking of John Milius, again, those other shows that I did, there's great uh, information on the, you know, Conan and everything about Conan. But there's a wonderful documentary. Uh, I forget what it's called. It might be called Milius, uh, for all I know. I don't remember exactly. I know there's a De Palma one, and then there's a John Milius one. And he gets really into a lot of this material of the making of this film. The producer of the film, the one that actually, you know, held the the rights to make this story was Dino De Laurentiis. And as you guys might remember from some of our previous shows, Dino was a, a character. Uh, he was a, a, I don't want to say low budget, but he was an Italian filmmaker that worked in the U.S. and uh, he worked all over the world, but he was able to transition into U.S. projects. And he was... Like, on fire for a long time. He did a ton of things with Schwarzenegger. He did so many things uh, that you would be shocked at how uh, influential he was. And there's so many stories about just the back and forth discussions and disagreements between Dino and Emilius and Dino and just about everybody he worked with, actors and, and, and producers and directors. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just incredible. For this particular project, for Conan, he assigned his daughter, who was 26 years old at the time, as his eyes and ears on set. So she was going to be his representative there. Yeah, there's, like I said, there's so many stories about that and other films, obviously. But another uh, notable person in the mix here is production designer Ron Cobb, who most of us probably know his name from uh, the movie Aliens. He, he's done so, he's kind of like Sid, the other half of Sid Mead. Ron Cobb and Sid Mead, they did just about every 1980s <laughs> fantasy science fiction film. It's just incredible the amount of work that he has done. And he also participated in this film. One of the things that's important about this is that I always 
remember saying to myself, oh my God, I wish somebody would put out an art book, a making of or an art of, because there was so much great material out there having to do with this film, but it was never compiled in one place. Well, here, again, this isn't a specifically art of book, but there are a lot of examples of the art that was brought about. Now, this is something also that we mentioned before, is that everybody wanted Frenzetta to be involved, but he would not budge on the price, on the money. (laughs) He would not budge on the money. He was notorious for wanting to have control of his art, which, hey, more power to you if you can do that. But in this particular case, they could not agree on an amount of money for him to come in and be the production designer and the art, you know, all that stuff for this film. However... As I mentioned on a previous episode having to do with the poster, he allowed them to use his Conan one-sheet drawing art as a coming soon, as a teaser poster for this film. But that is the only official involvement that Frenzetta had. Frenzetta is a huge, huge influence on this film in terms of the look. And the look has more to do with the fact that when his particular wave of reprints took place in the in the uh, 60s and 70s. His art is kind of what made it pop and made it more popular than ever before. The book had been printed. It had its success, I guess you could call it. Then it was reprinted. It had its success. But not until they hit that second reprint, I guess, was when everybody started associating Conan with Frenzetta. Those two images were kind of mashed together and they kind of pushed all through the rest of the, you know, through the 60s, the 70s and led to the formation of this film. There were also comic books, Marvel, I think Marvel Comics jumped in the Conan bandwagon and it's still, I don't know if they're still doing them, but it's one of the longest running comics that they've had on one specific subject. One of the things about this book that is a little bit of a turnoff, but Again, it's all we got, so it's, it's you can't complain about it, but again, if you set the bar so high, uh, like I do when it comes to Rinsler books, it's kind of difficult. A lot of the book uses screen grabs to show you, you know, scenes of the movie, pictures from the film. They do have a lot of on-set photography, of course, behind-the-scenes photography, all that kind of stuff, but there's also a lot of uh, screen grabs, and screen grabs are not always the best quality when it comes to pictures. And now keep in mind, we are dealing, and even the other books that I talked about, even the best books, the the, the Rinsler, Star Wars, uh, you know, uh, you name it, Alien, uh, Planet of the Apes, whatever. We're still dealing with like 1960s, 1970s, 1980s photography. It's not digital photography, obviously. It's traditional film cameras that are u- being used and now they're reproduced. So, Given the the fact that you're comparing a screen grab, a digital screen grab to a photograph, there's still a lack of detail, obviously. I remember when it comes to the, the screen grabs that uh, there was a point where I, I used to collect collector cards, you know, like uh, baseball cards, but not baseball. Obviously, I would do everything sci-fi. And uh, I, I had a lot of Babylon 5 cards. And so many of those cards, the majority of them, as a matter of fact, were... Screen grabs. And and there was a certain quality, a certain haziness, a certain, I don't know, lack of detail that kind of has moved on and on and on. And up, up until now, they still don't seem to be able to benefit, I guess, from, I don't know, a 4K, a Blu-ray, you know, something that is super, super detailed when you're watching it at home, to being able to transpose that, to transfer that image into a photograph that you can then publish in a book 
for example. So that is something that kind of goes along with all these books that I'm talking about today is that there's a lot of that. There's a lot of lack of detail. But again, you know, beggars can't be choosers. So it's like, I'll take whatever I can. I, I love the information. I love the art. You know, it's it's there. The book is broken down, and traditionally his books, at least the ones I've read so far, they, they kind of go in that manner. You know, they talk about the backstory, they talk about the characters, you know, you have a little a little bio and a little information on each character, then you break that into cer- certain departments, I guess, you know, production design and music and this and that and the other, and then filming, post-production, you know, release, posters, you know, th- th- there's a certain timeline to the way, uh, format in a way also of how he, he, he gives us his information. One of the things they talked about, and it's something that I was very interested in, because it's one of my favorite things, is there's the scene where they're in the um, attacking the they're they're rescuing the princess, uh, and and there's the the kitchen orgy scene, and they get themselves in in special camouflage paint, which is one of my favorite. I have a a doll here, uh, an action figure sized doll that is Schwarzenegger in that paint. I absolutely love the the design of that paint, and they. They gave us some information that that paint was based on the guy that played his um, his partner, Subutai, I think his name was, something like that, who was a, he wasn't really an actor. He was a friend of Milius, who was a uh, professional surfer, and they used him as a character. You know, they used him as an actor, and it worked out. And one of the things that he apparently used to do, I think with Milius even, was uh, they would create models, World War II uh, fighter planes and stuff like that. So according to the book, that paint design, those those unusual stripes, triangle, black on white kind of design that they, they apply to themselves, you know, before the this attack, it all came from that kind of uh, pattern, World War II uh, planes, that kind of thing, which is cool. I love the fact that, you know, that you're able to trace it down so specifically. And, and it looks, again, personally to me, it looks fantastic on film. There's a story that they talk about in the book also, uh, which I had heard before. And it's funny because that's one of the things about the book that is a little bit of a drawback about how when the actress that plays Valeria uh, was doing a certain scene, again, in, in that in that same rescue sequence, where she almost had her finger cut because one of the stuntman's blade slipped or something, and boom, it hit her in the finger. And from then onward, they had to change the swords, they were using more fake kind of swords to do some of the close-in fighting, as opposed to the more realistic swords, the more real, I mean, that actually could slice somebody up. So that's that's really unusual that they did that. And apparently she had to wear this like uh, protective thing on her hand for part of the filming to cover up the, the injury that she had. The film also had a number of, again, if you go back to the Oliver Stone script, the history behind his script is that it was so fantastical, so sword and sorcery, so on the sorcery side. It was almost like a Lord of the Rings kind of monster and mutant creatures and gigantic monsters. And, you know, there was so much more of that. And they at one point they realized they couldn't film that. That was not unfilmable. I mean, not until Lord of the Rings, actually, so many years later, with digital technology, obviously, that, that you, can, they, you can get to that level of detail and realism. Uh, but back then, that's what they had to scale back so many things from his script to kind of tone it down a little more. But one of the things that he had was other types of creatures 
And they do have certain pictures. Again, to me, they kind of look like screen grabs. Maybe they're Polaroids. I'm not entirely sure. But there was like the like a three-eyed monster and a Neanderthal creatures that are fighting. So there, there's much more having to do with your your bad. With, you know what creatures are are working on behalf of the the bad guy of the film. They talk about also how Milius shot so much. He would shoot so much. Again, this is film we're talking about, not digital. But he would shoot so much film. They said that the original cut would have been like three hours long if they would have used everything. The final cut ends up being a little bit over two hours. We go into the music, Basil Polidaris, which is a, a name that is just incredible. The type of stuff he's done in the past... Starship Troopers. Conan is just his, I would imagine, his most epic, epic score ever. The instructions he had were pretty much make it operatic because Milius told him that a lot of this movie is going to be silent in terms of there's not going to be a lot of dialogue. It's all action, 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 fight, fight, fight. I believe they were friends like in school or something. So that's how he hooked up with him. Also, apparently... Conan was one of the last scores to be recorded or at least released in mono, uh, not stereo. Now, granted, by the time you have a, a film, the, the film is mixed, you're going to have a, a most likely a stereo mix and that sort of thing. But they were never able to put out a stereo uh, version of the score for people to buy. I forget how much money. I think they said something like they didn't want to spend an extra $30,000. Dino didn't want to spend an extra $30,000 to be able to, uh, you know, release the score uh, in stereo mode. The poster, the classical poster that we all know, and again, go back to our previous episodes. We did a show that uh, talks about the making of this poster, but I'll go a little bit uh, around it, is that uh, the poster was drawn by Renato Castro. And if you think of the final poster, the one that came out of Conan and Valeria, the original rendition of that poster had him not only holding the sword in one hand up on the air, but on the other hand, he had a, a head, a severed head. And everybody said, no, no, you can't have a head. Universal, everybody's like, no, 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 no. This is not good for, uh, for, the, for, for selling the film to show so much violence on the poster. Episode 339 was the one that we did uh, having to do with the posters. And episode 30 and 31 is the one that I did with Mike Sutton uh, having to do with the film itself, the making of, the history, and all that stuff. So if you guys want to take a deeper dive into into what, what we know about the film. The book also has a couple of pictures of what is kind of labeled as King Conan, which would have been the third film. So the story goes that for the second film which ended up being Conan the Destroyer, Universal wanted a more family-friendly, a more a PG, if you will, a rated film, because this is an R-rated film. So they had to tone it down. And that's when Milius kind of dropped out of the film and said, no, I'm done. I don't want to do a sequel. You know, he did have in mind a, a third, a third film called King Conan, Crown of Iron. And up until a couple of years ago, he was still talking with Schwarzenegger about the fact that he still wanted to do it. Schwarzenegger is old now, so it's kind of, kind of, it would be in time-wise a good way of getting him back in the film. And the way that this first film ends, there is a shot of him with a long beard. He looks older and he's sitting on a throne, just kind of thinking or whatever. And that's like supposed to be him in the future. Well, they shot that in different ways, apparently, because I didn't know this. They shot it with him with a beard and him without a beard. Him by himself and him with a whole bunch of like 
girls around him. So there were multiple alternate takes, if you will, of how that should look. The book also has, since, again, if you're really into the art of which, which I love, the development of this film, there was an artist named Jim Danford who submitted a lot of art for this book, which is the art that he did when Stone was attached to the project, which means it had a lot more of his, uh, the Oliver Stone, like, craziness that, that could not be filmed. <laughs> to, I mean, you think about it to the point where, like, for example, the, the, the entire snake sequence, which is pretty good, but yeah, if it was digital now, they could have done so much more, but they had to do the whole thing practical because they could not, you know, make such a, huge snake move even the transformation from james l jones to the snake they had to cheat you know with cuts to go from one to the other to the other because it was just impossible to do such a rendition of, of a transformation the movie had to be cut three times i believe by the time they were able to 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 get an r rating because uh, apparently because of the violence obviously they, they kept having to cut it down and some of the scenes include or some of the the, the shots include the decapitations in the beginning of, her, of his family the kitchen where they have all those bodies hanging they had to like they, they even i think they said something about they had to to paint this the, the whole area they had to light it all red or, or give it a reddish hue to kind of conceal all the carnage that's going on in that kitchen so yeah they, they had to cut back quite a bit the film went from 140 minutes to 129 minutes for an international cut and 126 minutes for the U.S. cut. So, you know, that's that's the, the, the range you're kind of talking about. Now, one of my biggest complaints about this book, which I kind of mentioned before, and again, every time I complain about this book, I'm just trying to be critical. I'm trying to give some honest criticism of the book. I am grateful for it existing. <laughs> and it's one of those things that, well, it's better than nothing. Yes, it's better than nothing. And it's got a lot of good stuff. But the downside of this book and a lot of his books is that when you look at the bibliography in the back, the bibliography is huge. In other words, where all this information came from, previous books, a lot of it comes from DVD supplemental interviews, magazine articles, you know, Starlog magazine, you know, whatever happens to be the, the, the article or, or the magazine that they're talking about in the past. The actual original interviews for this book has a list of five individuals. And there, you know, obviously there was no Schwarzenegger, there's no John Milius, there's no really original interviews from the big, big, big wigs having to do with this movie. They were able to find some creative art people, you know, designers or producers or something like that. But yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, that's why I, when, while I was reading this book, a lot of it was like, oh yeah, I've heard that before, I've heard that. And then when you're like, wait a minute, this is like word by word, exactly what was said on the the making of uh, <laughs> supplemental material for the last uh, release, you know, the Blu-ray release or whatever. So yeah, there's a lot of that going on in this and, and some of his other books, which, you know, it's like, damn, I wish they would have gotten, you know, a little more original information. But again, you know, it's better than nothing. The second book I have, uh, and I'm going to go a lot faster on these because the, primarily is this Conan book that I, that I wanted to tell you about. But the second book that I read that I have by him that I already read is The Escape from New York one. Again, nobody's, as far as I know, has put out anything. And it's, it's like, I'll take it. I don't care. Let me have it. Let me have it. This is great material. And they talk a lot about in the book, and it's the same format. They, it's the same format as I mentioned before. They kind of follows that format of the, the backstory, the key players, the production, the post-production, blah, 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 all the way to the end. But John Carpenter jumps onto this film after having the beginning of his career and having some 
pretty big success early on. He did Dark Star, which was eh, moderately successful. I have yet to watch that film all the way through. Sold in Precinct 13. It's a great cult film, if you will. Halloween, that's what put him on the map. Halloween was it. That opened up all the doors for the next, I don't know, 10, 15 years, you know, for him to work. Then he did The Fog, slightly smaller, pretty creepy little movie. I like it. And then he did this one. Technically, this was not the first time he worked with Kurt Russell. He had done a TV movie, Elvis, which I've never seen, but I've heard good things about, where they worked together. And that's how, you know, he made that connection. He says, and a lot of people that deal with the film, or at least deal with the storyline of the film, he talks about how it's basically a Western. He wanted to have this Western feel to it. And an actor like Kurt Russell kind of brings that to you. The studio wanted a more traditional, no name, because Kurt Russell wasn't that well known. He was a he was a Disney kid who did a lot of Disney films. And then he, you know, moved on to do some more adult-ish films. Not that kind of adult, but yeah, you know, I think it was it used cars. It was a Ron Howard film, I think, that he uh, he had done and, and comedies. That's the thing. He was more known for comedy, so he was starting to inch little by little towards more dramatic roles. And with Elvis, obviously, that's that gets a little more dramatic. That's for sure. So the studio uh, wanted somebody more like Charles Bronson or Tommy Lee Jones. You know, at the time, <laughs> that's who they were pitching for. And he was like, No, 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 no. This is who I want. The book talks about how the eye patch uh, was Russell's idea. Uh, you know, once they were trying on the costume and everything, he wanted to add an eye patch to see what that would be like, and it worked out. You know, he went with it. The addition of Lee Van Cleef into the casting of this film, again, really brings home the Western aspect to it. Lee Van Cliff is a prototypical Western bad guy. He's done so many films and, you know, the spaghetti Westerns with, with Eastwood. You get that feel. With Kurt Russell, you get a little bit of that clean Eastwood, man with no name, aura. And that's all over this film. This film is, it is a Western, if you think about it. It's 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 a Western. It's a futuristic Western. It's, it's fantastic. I love this film. Again, these are some of the things that we've known before because we did this show before. We have a couple of shows on Escape from New York. Some of them might be even commentaries, but I'm not sure right now. But St. Louis was chosen as the site because there was apparently a big fire in one part of the city and that it had not been rebuilt at that moment. So they were able to use that as the location to replicate New York, New York City. The Escape Pod... I didn't know this one. The escape pod that the president uh, shoots out of his plane uh, when he lands in New York. Apparently, that prop, that that ball egg-shaped prop, was then later reused for the show Mork and Mindy. It was later reused and painted white, and it was uh, Mork's <laughs> egg, which I've never... I don't know if I ever knew that. I wonder if uh, we talked about it when we did our, our other show. The World Trade Center glider landing. Well... Again, nowadays, you watch this film, and it's, it has a whole other feel to it. Obviously, you know, the events of 9-11 happened way, way later. So the fact that in this world, but it's actually, it's not it's not bad, because it's, it actually could be accurate in one sense of the word, because it's it hadn't happened yet, but it doesn't matter. The point is that they could obviously not shoot a film on the World Trade Center, on the, on the roof of the World Trade Center. So what they ended up doing, having to recreate the skyline, the buildings the roofs at other locations. Production designer Joe Alves, who's one of the giants of the 70s and 80s, Jaws, Close Encounters, you name it. He was the guy. He was part of the the crew that, that came up with all these different things. They actually went to California. Somewhere in the desert in California, there was a, an area they could use to create the rooftop so that the landing could happen, the, the real live scale 
landing would happen somewhere in a space that's big enough to accommodate. And, and you have enough of a vista, I guess, that you could kind of show a very dark, dark area that goes long, long, long out. The special effects of this film are very, very creative. Again, this is pre-CGI. So in the beginning of the film, when you see the, the narration that's kind of putting you in place of what's happening, and it's describing this is an island and it's cordoned off in all these places and, and the Statue of Liberty, and it's supposed to look like a computer display. It wasn't a computer display, it was animation. Then when you do see the, the wireframe view of his glider going into the city, and you're looking at the, the all the different buildings and the maneuvering that was done again miniature effects the miniature buildings all of them i think were they were mainly black with white little outlines on the edges and then they were able to color chemically color those white lines turning them green so it gives you this very rudimentary computer look i mean i think tron was also done a little bit in that way certain scenes where you wanted to fake a computer look you would shoot it in a certain way, in certain colors, and then colorize it, and it will give you that wireframe. One of the people involved in making some of those miniatures, and even some of the um, mad paintings, was James Cameron. He had worked on Battle Beyond the Stars, and they were hired to do, the, the, that same company was hired to do this film. So he he has, a, a, there's a couple of shots that you, you've seen, I mean, I've seen them before, and again, they, they get reproduced here, where you do see Cameron working on some uh, some models and stuff like that. The narration in the beginning, again, this is one of those little trivia things that I might have known, but I've forgotten about. The narration of, of the beginning that's done by a, a, like a female voice, that's Jamie Lee Curtis. And obviously, she had done a, a, at least two other films you know, with him before. And it's funny because some of the ladies in, in, in John Carpenter's films end up showing up in other films. Adrian Barbeau, who's the lead actress in this film, she ends up showing up in The Thing. I believe she's the voice of The Computer. So it's it's funny how, you know, you can sneak in certain pretty famous voices uh, without really knowing about it. The posters. Well, the primary poster, which is, again, another one that we talked about in the previous show, was done by Barry Jackson. And one of the things that in this book he explains is that the way that he painted the poster was the Statue of Liberty head that's in the background of the poster. He says he painted that completely separate on a separate cell. This way he can kind of angle and move it around because again, this is before Photoshop, any kind of computer manipulation of pictures. So that is one way that he can, and I guess he or other artists would do this, they can manipulate the placement of an object after it's done and say, all right, if I want to move it to the left three inches, I don't have to like repaint it over three inches. I can just take the cell, slide it over and boom, there it is. There's your, your manipulation of the, again, it used to be a cut and paste, a physical cut and paste world when it came to doing that kind of design. I mean, not every artist can just get it right the first time. There are changes that need to be made. I mean, I, I've heard stories in the past, even with Star Wars, where McQuarrie would draw over other things that he already pre-drawn to change them. He would just draw on top, which is incredible when you think about it. And that's nothing new that, I mean, even super famous historical painters that all of a sudden they find like a painting underneath a painting, you know, that they are reusing canvases and that sort of thing. There were apparently up to 10 different artists who submitted who they were picking from in terms of how many different people can submit posts. And there's a lot of posters out there. Man, there's a lot of posters, international posters. There's some really cool ones out there. And the funny thing is this. Our previous subject that we talked about was Matt Ferguson's Empire and Jedi 40th Anniversary Posters. Matt Ferguson did a poster for the 2016 4K restoration of Escape from New York. And 
it's funny because when you look at that poster, you can see a little bit of what he talks about, about the symmetrical framing of him trying to use certain pictures, certain images that were not used in the famous poster to kind of give it a different spin. And it's there. And it's a pretty cool looking poster, to tell you the truth. Just like with the other one, when you go to the back of the poster, there's a ton, a ton, ton of bibliography uh, references, you know, that. And this one has about 13 different interviews. So the interview count is a little better, but still, you're not dealing with the top dogs here. So it's kind of like that. The third book, which it's the one I'm going to talk about the least, is the Flash Gordon book that he did. The Flash Gordon book that he did, uh, I think might have been the first one that I bought. I'm not sure if it was the first or the second. But... Again, this one goes into the the whole history. I mean, obviously, with Flash Gordon, you have to go back to the comic books, and you have to go back to the the serials, and you have to go back to all this other stuff. But what's important here is that um, they had a a director attached uh, to this film named Nicholas Rogue. And from what I gathered, again, because we're dealing with Dino Laurentiis here once again... This was supposed to be Dino's Star Wars. And and ironically enough, uh, George had wanted to buy, George Lucas had wanted to buy the rights to Flash Gordon, but he couldn't get them. He couldn't acquire the rights. Dino De Laurentiis ended up getting the rights to Star Wars at some point because he wanted to make his his Star Wars. And the original director, um, from, what I, from, from what this book tells us, um, he wanted to make a more intellectual, serious version of, of Flash Gordon. And... You know, there was a lot of pre-artwork done, conceptual artwork done, uh, you know, in that manner. But he and Dino apparently didn't get along after a while. A lot of people, like I like I mentioned before, don't get along with Dino. Dino's a bit of a problem, but he's got the connections, he's got the money, he's got the the resources. After Dino, the after um, this particular director, you know, kind of went away from uh, from the film. Dino wanted to make it more comic bookish. And that's where Mike Hodges jumps in. Mike Hodges is the director that ends up directing this film. And he kind of jumps into this film and he's not able to really to design it on his own because it has already been pre-designed. All the artwork is there. It's all he they just wanted him to kind of like start tomorrow and start filming. So he says that for his particular vision of the film, even though again you're dealing with Dino De Laurentiis, what he was able to inject into the film a little more that was not there before is the the comedic aspects now granted this is a very campy kind of film it doesn't take itself completely completely too serious uh, but um you could see that 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 it is more visual. The visuals are amazing in this film. It is not a straight serious film and that's not what Dino wanted. It is very Comic, it, it writes the line between comic book and, and serious. It writes that line, at, in my opinion, successfully. <coughs> I, I know that it's a little too much for some people, but it's a different flavor. It's the same thing that I, I talked about in the past having to do with, with comic book films. Comic book films can either go in one direction or the other. You can go the Dark Knight Civil War route, which is the super ultra realistic, which I absolutely love, or... You can go into like the 300 um, uh, kind of, this looks like a comic book. These poses, these movements, these, you know, the Zack Snyder look, it's very comic bookish. So for this particular film, when you combine those two, when you try to ride the line between those two extremes, 
and you then throw the comedy in it, it works. And I wish they would have done another one of these. The uh, the book, uh, you know, the, the casting that goes over the cast again, it uses the usual formula. Um, the, the, when it comes to the casting, again, listen to some of our other shows that we did about Flash Gordon, because there is this whole controversy where I think at one point, um, um, the guy who plays, uh, I forget his name. Good Lord. Uh, the guy, the, the, the lead actor who plays Flash Gordon, he, he got into a dispute, uh, with, with, with the production company, with the director where he wasn't available uh, to do certain voiceovers, I believe, and they ended up having to dub his voice with someone else. So there's a lot of craziness going on, um, you know, having to, having to do with that. Um, the artist of the poster, the 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 the, um, the the final one sheet of the film poster was Richard Amsell, who is one of the giants of poster uh, design. Um, there are more modern versions. There are a lot of good versions out there, uh, but he did the, 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 the actual one. And we did do a show uh, having to do with the design of that poster and, and how that poster came about. So once again, you have here a couple of uh, different books. Um, there's a couple more in the horizon. There's a couple. There's at least one more that I own that I haven't even touched yet. Uh, but I do love the fact that this uh, writer uh, is taking the time to hit some of these topics or some of these films that are not necessarily the ones that people are going crazy over in terms of merchandising them uh, to, to a certain extent, or at least putting out these making of books. I know we all wish, and by all, I mean me, wish that they would put out uh, more of the Rinsler type books. Uh, I, I've talked about this once before. They did put out, um, before Rinsler passed away, he did talk about him finishing uh, a a a shining a the shining book, um, and that it would be put out at some point. Apparently, this book was put out um, with another writer, um, and it's a Tashin book. Tashin book, which we talked about Tashin books in the past. These are very expensive books. We you know, I have a few of them that I gotten on sale. You know, when they were like seventy five percent off, that kind of thing. They're huge, huge, huge coffee table size books. But apparently, this last one that they put out, having to do with The Shining, is limited to I don't know how many copies. But it's like a, but it's like a like a thousand dollar book. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous. I think it's either a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars. It's a ridiculously expensive book. Uh, so unless that book's ever uh, put on sale or, or they, they, they print a, an affordable version of the book, I'm never going to get my hands on it. Uh, and it's a shame because that is the last Rinsler book, uh, you know, that he participated in. So if you guys are into some of these making of books, you have a great selection here uh, in case you didn't know they were available. All right, I hope everybody enjoyed today's show. We started off with our posters of the month, and we had Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi 40th Anniversary posters. As I mentioned before, I'm hoping that they will come around for the 50th anniversary to hit the Star Wars one, since the artist already has apparently something in mind. I hope it's not the same thing he already put out, because he did put out, like I mentioned before, a Star Wars poster that is not 
very one sheet centric, if you will. But I don't know, you never know, he might reuse some of that art for his bigger design, whatever it is that his bigger design is. But whatever it will be, if it happens, I'm sure it will be something in the same theme, something where you have not seen these iconic images before in a poster. And there's certain symmetry to the poster, so I can't wait for that to happen. And then we talked about a couple of making of books, which I know I keep saying these are no Rinslers, but they're the next best thing. A lot of the information it was kind of repetitive in terms of if you're a diehard fan of these films, you will have heard a lot of this before on DVD supplementals, in magazine articles, you know, on the internet, you know, you, you will have seen or heard this before, but there were a couple of little nuggets here or there that I was able to find that I don't believe I knew. And primarily one of the best things about these books is the art because of the fact that these films are not big enough, apparently, to have their own art of kind of books the way Star Wars does. And, and you think about it, really, Star Wars is one of the only ones that really go that crazy. The art of blah, 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 whatever happens to be the movie. It has to be a super, super big movie most likely franchise kind of movie for it to, to 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 fall under the the art of unless you're dealing with the specific artist where you're doing some kind of retrospective of his entire life work and you're doing you know the art of so and so but for a movie it's a little more difficult and for conan which was the main book that i focused on it would have been nice to have its own you know art of but even better than that if frenzetta would have been involved in the entire making of the film you could just imagine how different the art part of it would be because he would have produced so much art but instead we have some of the other artists that participated in that film and at least we got that and that is directly you know more or less what ended up on the film on the actual frame so these are some pictures that i was able to see a long time ago on old starlog magazines for example and now at least they're in a in a better format and a nice book printed book to be able to admire <laughs> without fear of it getting ruined by being an old magazine. And as I mentioned, we also hit a little bit on Escape from New York and Flash Gordon. These two films, another favorites of mine. Hopefully this writer will make a couple more books of some of those kind of genre films that I'm into. And by that, I'm talking something like The Terminator, The Thing, The Road Warrior, Near Dark, Predator, those kind of films. And hopefully I'll be able to get my hands on that final The Shining Rinsler book, you know, in some shape or form, if they either make a smaller version of it, an economy version of it, or if they have some insane sale where it's down to like 90%, because that's the only way I can afford that book. It's so damn expensive. I would have to be 90% off, but that's a lot to wish for as far as I know. But anyway... Thank you, everybody, for listening, and we will see you soon here at GeekFest Rant. Bye-bye, everybody. Warrior. Man of great strength. 
to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2024. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots radio network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long.